If you would like to join me in the scriptures this evening, I am going to be in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 3. Let me pray. Father, I'm inviting you to join uh, with me here in this building, and uh, as I, I teach, I pray that you would join people, whether they're watching this in their homes or in a vehicle, uh, whether they're sneaking this in at a break at work, I would just pray, God, that you would use your word to uh, hammer home truths that maybe we've forgotten or have uh, ceased to make central. And so focus our hearts and our minds together in Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever undervalued something so that later it came back to bite you. I was thinking uh, one thing is that my, my brother, uh, who's four years older than me, knew a lot about baseball cards, what they were worth and what they were not, and I did not. So he would just he would play on the fact that I might like a certain player and uh, think that they, that, you know, they played for the team that I liked, and I underestimated the value of my cards, and he would just wheel and deal me all the time. Or I thought about the time... Uh, there was a movie uh, that we watched in history class on the Civil War, and I slept through the whole thing. And then the teacher afterwards explained that that would be like 30% of the test the next day. Uh, but the one that stuck out to me the most of a time that I undervalued the moment, I underestimated the significance of what was going on, uh, was when I was driving a car when I was about 17. So this wasn't my car. It didn't look like this. I actually had a, it was a 1988 Oldsmobile 98, white with the maroon interior. Um, but I was driving along one day, and at that time, my father used to say that I had a problem with too much gas and too much brake. But I was driving down the road, and I just took one of those intersections a little fast and did one of those jobbies and, and kept going. And I heard this little thunk thunk. But Cars go thunk thunk, right? And so I continued driving and playing, and all of a sudden, then I heard this. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I did the little jump over the intersection, turns out I had hit my transmission pan, and I under underestimated the importance of that noise as well as the the value of having transmission fluid in the vehicle rather than all over the road. Needless to say, that was the last day I drove the 1988 Oldsmobile 98. But tonight, I want to ask a different question. Have you ever stopped to think, what's at risk if we undervalue Jesus? What's at risk if we undervalue Jesus? Maybe the text before us can help. Mark 14, verse 3 says, While... Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Now, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. 
Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is God's word. So as we walk through this text, I want to I wanna make two inquiries, and later I want to have two uh, implications. So uh, in, inquiries, questions about this text. Uh, first inquiry, what did this woman do? And then the inquiry number two is, how did Jesus respond? So inquiry number one, what did this woman do? Well, first let's understand uh, the time and place. This is in the last week of Jesus' life. Scholars tell us that Jesus had a public ministry for three to four years, traveling primarily in the uh, country of Israel, going outside the borders on a rare occasion. And what he has done in his final week is he has made a beeline and he has come and begun a series of ministry, a series of days of ministry in the city of Jerusalem. He's taught in Jerusalem. He's said prophetic things about the future in Jerusalem. He stood up against religious leaders in Jerusalem. But every, at the end of every day, he actually walks a few miles outside of, uh, down the road to a different community called Bethany. And there he has been staying. So he wakes up at Bethany in the morning, walks into Jerusalem, he does ministry. Day ends, he goes home. And so we're a few days into this final week and Jesus is in Bethany. And it says he's staying at the home He's eating at a home of Simon the leper. Potentially, Simon is someone that Jesus has healed previously, but he still has this epithet, the leper. Jesus is there. We know from the gospel of John's account of this situation that Lazarus is there, and Mary is there, and Martha is there. So you get this picture of this this fairly large meal with guests. And, and they're reclining around a table, which is, means it's a, it's a nice meal. They're, they're probably eating things like grapes and bread and goat's milk, maybe a portion of wine or even lamb. But then there's this very rude interruption. Someone shows up. We know from the Gospel of John, it's Mary's sister to Martha and Lazarus. But in Mark's account, Matthew's account, we don't even know. It's an unknown woman, or unnamed woman, excuse me. And she does something remarkable. She takes a a jar of very expensive perfume. We know from, again, uh, 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 the gospel account in John that it's it's a year's worth of wages and value. And she she breaks it, and she begins to to pour this over Jesus' head. I mean, you can, the, the, the pugnancy, the smell would have been just so overpowering. You think about a year's worth of wages. Um, for my, my little understanding of, of ancient history, uh, people don't have savings accounts of any significant value. Their value is in their land or in their livestock. They don't throw money in the bank. So this is one of the few things that would have had any worth probably to Mary, and she breaks it. This is her livelihood. This is her life. This is a, this is a symbol of, of total surrender 
Maybe she was listening carefully when Jesus said what's recorded in Luke 14.33. He says, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And so Jesus, or Mary breaks this, pours over Jesus' head, and all of the onlookers say, why the waste? Why the waste? Now, I want to think a little bit about that expression, why the waste? Um, what does it mean when someone says that? Uh, let, let me give you an example that may help uh, you think a little bit about it. Um, I did a little research over the last few weeks on uh, famous inheritances to pets. And uh, the most famous inheritance was given to a German shepherd named Gunter III for $106 million. Why the waste, right? But the more interesting one that I thought was $10 million given to a chicken named Giju, a little hen now has $10 million to her name. Now, when we say, why the waste? What are we doing? We're doing two things. We're insulting the giver, and we're demeaning the recipient. That expression, why the waste? It's an, it's an insult to the giver. Like, you are a fool, woman. But it's also demeaning the recipient. Jesus, you're not worth that. What did this woman do? Answer. The woman gave an over-the-top gift to Jesus. That's what she does. Writer James Edwards has remarked, quote, The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. Unquote. Hear that again. The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. But this woman is a moderate over the top. She's crazy about Jesus. But guess what? If you were to ask her what she was doing, she would have said, this is the, this is the sanest thing I've ever done. She's like the poor college senior who's been staying up late, skipping his studies, and for weeks composing a romantic song and melody. Then he goes and he cashes out his entire savings to buy a ring. He concocts an elaborate plan, culminating with him on his knee, singing to his beloved and asking for her hand. He's a moderate. He's over the top. He's crazy. Some of his buddies might be looking up and be like, dude, you're crazy. But those with the eyes to see can see love. You see, love is, is intangible to the doubters, but the most real thing in the universe to the one who believes. And this woman believes. She sees Jesus' value. I don't know who's listening to this tonight or in future uh, watchings, but can I just talk to the Christians? So if you're considering Christianity, uh, if you're just investigating the claims of Christians, you don't have to listen to this at all. But if you have said, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've trusted Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, let me just ask you this question. Would the non-believing, non-Christians in your life think you're crazy? Over the top in love with Jesus. Notice in this account, what did it say about the woman? It says, she gave, this is verse 8, she did what she could. She did what she could. 
She gave what she had. Could the same be said about you? Have you given your life and your livelihood to Jesus? Inquiry number one, what did this woman do? Answer, she gave an over-the-top gift to Jesus. Inquiry number two, how does Jesus respond? I mean, we saw everybody else, like, what, the, what a waste. How does Jesus respond? What I want you to see is that he ties her beautiful gift to the more over-the-top good news about himself. First, look what it says here in verse 6. She said, Jesus, speaking to these uh, people who are shocked by the wasteful gift, he says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Beautiful. It's a Greek word, kalos. It's where we get the terms like calligraphy, beautiful writing, and kaleidoscope, beautiful view. Jesus says, this act, it is beautiful. Now, it's beautiful, but it's, it's not equal to the good news about Jesus. But notice he wants to, he says, this story about her, it's going to be told again and again. That's what we're doing here on Good Friday. Her beautiful act. But it points to an even more beautiful Savior, a, a news so grand and so great that it's changed the world two, three, four, five times over, right? And Jesus says this about himself. First he says in verse 7, you know, the poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you'll not always have me. Christianity is not, is not a philanthropy. Right? Christianity is Christ-centered. Like, we are focused on Jesus. Jesus is of the highest worth. We love Jesus. We're passionate about Jesus. And therefore, we do good things for the poor. But our, our attention, our focus should be on Jesus. And he's saying that's what she's doing. She knows that I have a greater significance, greater worth than even the suffering poor. I heard uh, John Piper, a, a pastor, recently retired pastor, he once said, um, Christians care about all suffering but especially eternal suffering. Right, the idea that what Jesus does on Good Friday is he dies for the sins of those who will trust in him. He dies to make sure that people won't suffer eternally. Yes, we care about all suffering, but we care especially about eternal suffering, and that's why Jesus is going to go to the cross. He goes on and says in verse 8, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Her burial. This, this acts prepare for Jesus' burial. I'm going to die, he's saying. One of the things I love about this account is on the resurrection Sunday, the women show up with perfumes and spices to take care of what they perceive is going to be Jesus' rotting corpse. Well, he's already resurrected by then. Mary, Mary had her shot and she took it to anoint her Savior. But look what he says in verse 9. This is what I think is just. It shows the, that there's a difference between what she's done and what he's going to do. Because he says in verse 9, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. His significance is so grand 
The event that he's going to do, culminating with his death and then his resurrection, is going to be good news for the entire world, for all people, all places, all land, all time. It's significance we can't wrap our minds around. And he says, that's the good news that's going to go to the ends of the earth, news about me. And we'll talk about this woman too. (laughs) Now, let's talk about death. Everyone knows that the ultimate sacrifice anyone can give is their life. We know that. Uh, This is why the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., it lists the names of 58,220 men and women who gave their lives during the Vietnam conflict. We read in 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But the significance of Jesus' death has ramifications for all people, all times, and all places. And it's because of who he is. He's more than a noble martyr. He's more than a soldier giving his life for his country. Why? Because Jesus is the eternal son of God. He has infinite worth. For all eternity, he's been marked by glorious splendor. But in coming to earth, The Son of God took on mortality for the first time. He chose vulnerability. He accepted pain, suffering, and death. He did all this without sin. He did not deserve to die by the hands of men. Sinful men deserve to die, but Jesus was without sin. Thus, he owed no debt of death to God. In fact, his perfect life earned Jesus perfect reward and endless life. That's what he deserved. but he dies. He gives himself. I want you to compare Jesus to the bosses on that TV show, Undercover Boss. Now, this is a reality show that's been going on for about nine seasons. In each episode, a business owner or a CEO, they disguise themselves as some normal new hire working a few shifts with people on the lower rungs of the company. Companies like Marco's Pizza, Waste Management, and Nestle have all been featured. Now, usually the high-paid executive struggles with the menial tasks. Um, uh, Often in the episode, they find out just how hard it is for people working 40-plus hours a week on a a low wage. And the end of the show has all these typical endings. Uh, First of all, the workers find out they've been working with the boss. They're like, whoa, that's crazy. But then the CEO does something, like gives the people they've been working with a big raise, or sometimes they've, uh, you know, she's paid off like a house debt or has made sure that they got a fast track, uh, some sort of promotion. And, and you all kind of cry a tear at the end of every episode. Um, but if you actually go and begin to read the reviews of these companies and these bosses, uh, you find out that their generosity is a drop in the bucket. They usually don't, they don't do pay raises across the board. They don't lower their salary to make sure that no one has the struggles like the people they worked with in the, in the particular store that they worked in. It's a feel-good thing, but it doesn't do much good. It's an offering, but it's a, it's a paltry one. But what Christians focus on each Good Friday is the most sacrificial of all time, a priceless gift, the gift of God's Son, and he gives himself freely and fully 
and completely. It's captured so well in the Apostle Paul's poem in Philippians chapter 2 that uh, we're supposed to just get our minds around the love and the humility of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, though, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He was made in the appearance of a man, and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This isn't some drop in the bucket, feel good but no good. This is Jesus giving his life. What did this woman do? She gave this over-the-top gift. How did Jesus respond? He said, I'm going to tie her beautiful gift to the greatest gift of all time. I'm going to tie it to the testimony of my life, to the ends of the earth, to all nations and all ages. It's about me. How about some implications, though? Two things that I believe bear on us, Good Friday 2020. Implication number one is significant. You can't pay God back. You can't pay God back. I have uh, just want you to imagine that a lot of us think that when we give something to God, like we're giving him like this really big gift. You know, like, God, I got up early on Sunday and I made it to church. I don't always do that. Or, God, I gave you $5,000 this year. But the reality is, we think it's this big gift, but it's more like this. Right? It's, it's something, but it doesn't come close to paying God back. Acts, in the book of Acts, the message of Christianity starts moving out. And when it gets to Athens, a man named Paul stands up and he, he's trying to explain to these Greco-Roman uh, pagans who've been worshiping statues and pouring out libations. He says to them, the true God, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. We don't pay God back, nor should we try to pay God back. God is, you know, some people think like, oh, God did so much for me. I'm going to do so much for him, and we, we get to it. But that's not what God wants. He wants to realize that we can never pay him back, that the gift is too grand, too beautiful. It was put so well in the hymn by Isaac Watts, when he writes these lyrics, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Then he says, were the whole realm of nature mine, if I had the whole earth, the whole globe, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. So if I can't pay God back, what should I do? Well, it's what you should always do when something is given to you as a pure gift. You rejoice. You marvel. You express deep gratitude. 
in May, I celebrate 17 years of marriage to, to Carrie. Um, I marvel at it every day. I'm not trying to pay her back for saying yes. I think that would insult her. Because like, when, when have I done enough? You know, well, I've done 16 and a half years of dishes. I think we're square now, honey. Right? There's that temptation to, to just miss out on the fact that this human being has chosen to walk with me and, and to forbear with me. But we're talking about the Son of God who's perfect and holy and righteous and true. And by giving his blood, he says we can have a relationship. Jesus Christ can be my brother. The Heavenly Father can be my Heavenly Dad, my Abba. Marvel. Express deep gratitude. Rejoice. Bow. Be undone. Can't pay God back. And yet there is this second implication. You can demonstrate God's worth with your far too small offerings. You can demonstrate God's worth with your far too small offerings. Like, your offering doesn't pay God back, but it can demonstrate to others how worthy Jesus is. That's what this unnamed woman in Mark chapter 14 did. She was showing anybody listening, watching, why Jesus is worth it. The Apostle Paul made this remark in his letter to the Colossians. He writes this, uh, chapter 1, verse 24. He says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So catch that, I'll read it again. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What does Paul mean? How can he say something was lacking in, regarding, in regard to Christ's sufferings and afflictions? Well, first off, there was absolutely nothing lacking in Christ's death and suffering to save us from his sin. The, the atonement was sufficient. Uh, Scott read early, it was a once-for-all sacrifice. It was complete. So when Paul says there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions, it's not for salvation, it's not for atonement. But for Paul, what still lacks are fresh demonstrations of the worth of Christ's suffering. Fresh demonstrations. Paul gladly sacrificed and suffered not to be praised for his deeds, not to pay God back, but so others would see the surpassing worth of Christ's death. He was ready to suffer, to be persecuted, and to even die so that people would know Christ is worthy. He's worthy of everything I can give, and if I give all that I give him, I haven't paid him back, and yet, it's beautiful. Jesus would look, that's a beautiful thing. R.G. Letourneau was an inventor and entrepreneur who made millions of dollars during the Great Depression. He has over 300 patents to his name, most involving earth-moving equipment and manufacturing processes. Most people thought he was crazy because he gave away 90% of his income. It's gone. John Wesley, he served God in the 18th and 19th century. Using today's numbers... John Wesley's books and resources brought in an annual income of about $160,000. He lived on one-eighth of his earnings, about 20, the equivalent of $20,000.
One writer records this, quote, When Wesley died in 1791, sorry, he lived in the 18th century. When Wesley died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins to be found in his pockets and dresser drawers. Most of the 30,000 pounds he had earned in his lifetime, he had given away. Wesley had said this before he died, I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me hence, but in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. I know a nurse from Cedar Rapids who got on a plane last week and flew to New York City to care for COVID-19 patients. Remember the woman. She did what she could. She gave what she had. More significantly, Jesus did what he could. He gave what he had. After reflecting on our Bible passage, a scholar named James Edwards says this. The value of the gift signals the value of the person to whom it is given. The extravagance of the woman shows that she alone understands Jesus' incommensurable worth. She knows, she sees, she understands. And this story is preserved every time the gospel is preached so that we would maybe have a grasp, a pinprick of understanding what this woman knew. Jesus is worth it. Friends, on the cross, Jesus gave his life for sinners. He took their death, their shame, and their punishment. He took all we deserve so that we can receive everything he deserved. Does the truth of the good news undo you? That's what Good Friday services are designed to do, to help us see God's over-the-top gift to make us new people, to change us, for us to marvel at the grace upon grace which comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything we do in response is an offering far too small, but beautiful nonetheless. Jesus on the cross. There is no greater gift, and there is no greater gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, people listening, watching today would have a a merry moment where they would just see that Jesus is worth it all. And they 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 would get rid of, they would bestow, they would sacrifice anything just to display the excellency and worthiness of Jesus Christ. He is worthy. And we pray that we would not be captured by these things that we've held onto that we used to think were worthy. Lord, we don't want to pay you back. We, We know we can't. But we do want to just communicate in love that we think you're worth it. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God. And pray that if anyone, even maybe listening or watching this, they would believe this good news, they could know that they have everlasting life. Renew us and undo us by your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen.